one of the most basic common discoveries that people make on psychedelics is things can be different, right? It can be otherwise. I can be otherwise. This is a type of knowledge that people who have severe depression and addiction and these sorts of things often struggle to access. Um, and even if they know it intellectually, they don't really know it deep down. They don't really believe it in their heart or in their guts. Um, and I think this is yeah, one of the core things that psychedelics show you is that experientially in terms of how you experience yourself and how you experience the world and how you experience the relations between the two, things can be otherwise. There are many different ways I can be, many different ways I can see things, many different ways I can relate to my experience. And that modal knowledge goes hand in hand with this um, phenomenal opacity we were talking about, right? It's all part and parcel with discovering that you know one's ordinary and seemingly kind of um, immediate and direct experience of self and world is in fact profoundly constructed because the fact that it's constructed means that it's mutable it's contingent it can be different I am Oshan Jaro, and welcome back to the Musing Mind podcast. In today's episode, I'm joined by Dr. Chris Letheby. He is a philosopher of cognitive science who focuses on psychedelic experiences um, and its implications for our theories of consciousness and how these psychedelic experiences and the cognitive science of the 21st century, you know, that's kind of unlocking all sorts of insights into how the brain constructs and models the world, and more importantly, the self, how these things can help inform a new kind of spirituality, an understanding of what spiritual experience is that fits our more scientifically informed worldviews today. Uh, this is a project that Chris calls Naturalizing Spirituality. Chris is a lecturer in philosophy at the University of Western Australia and a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Adelaide. He has a soon-to-be-published and phenomenal book uh, titled Philosophy of Psychedelics. And along with Philip Durand's, Chris is behind one of the most interesting and recent theories of what the self is, right? A theory that explains why the sensation of being a self arises in consciousness at all, and why that self feels like the gravitational center of all experience, right? A theory which they call the predictive self-binding account. And this theory gives us a, a very helpful kind of explanatory framework to understand what is going on in the brain and in our cognitive systems during high-dose psychedelic experiences, which disrupt self-consciousness and lead to all sorts of unusual and highly interesting experiences. And as I mentioned, looking at psychedelic experience from the lens of Chris's theory of self-consciousness gives us all sorts of novel insights into how we might understand and rethink what spirituality is and can be in the 21st century. Specifically, he develops this idea of unselfing, how, how psychedelics kind of unbind what he calls the self-model and this unselfing, this deliberate alteration to our representational structure of self-consciousness is the, the primary source on his account of what we tend to call spiritual experience. So, I've organized our conversation into three main sections. 
Uh, I did this for my conversation with Barnaby Rain on capitalism and the self, and people seem to find it really helpful like, to kind of have a, a narrative picture of the podcast up front. So in section one, Chris and I discuss his predictive self-binding theory of consciousness. Uh, so this means we get into what the self is, how the brain constructs and hallucinates our experience of reality, and how these two cognitive processes, predictive processing and cognitive binding, work together to produce the sensation of being a self. In the second section, we use Chris's theory of the self to understand what's happening when people take psychedelics and experience all kinds of disruptions and alterations to their self-consciousness. So we get into this idea of unselfing and the role that our prior beliefs play in constructing our worlds. Uh, we also, by the way, got uh, a little into drawing analogies between his work on how psychedelics expand the space of what is possible for us uh, cognitively and, and some theory and criticism of capitalism, uh, especially by Mark Fisher, looking at ways that certain elements of our particular form of capitalism today might be affecting cognition, right? The space of what is possible for us to imagine. And then in part three, we talk about uh, what Chris means by naturalizing spirituality and what these psychedelic experiences seen from the vantage point of his theory of the self can tell us about that project and about reintegrating some notion of spirituality back into our worldviews. Uh, this was such a fun conversation, and I think Chris's work is just absolutely brilliant. Um, if you have the stomach for science writing, I've linked a few of his papers that are absolutely worth reading, um, or you can pre-order his book, which is due out any month now. Uh, links to all of that and to everything we mentioned throughout the podcast can be found on the show notes page, as well as a transcript, uh, even though a shoddily done uh, robot-driven one, which you can find at musingmind.org slash podcast and clicking on the episode with Chris Lethaby. If you find any value in the podcast and want to help it continue existing, you can share it on social media or leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, which not only helps new listeners find the show, but it helps assure potential guests that uh, it might be worth saying yes to my random invite emails. And if you're truly compelled to support the show and you have the means, you can become a Patreon supporter by offering a small monthly donation like one or two bucks a month. Uh, the stability of which really helps me to invest more time and equipment into improving the podcast. You can go to patreon.com slash or just find a link on the podcast page. All right, here is Chris Lethaby. Chris Lethaby, uh, welcome to the Muse of Mind podcast. Thanks so much for taking the time to join me today. My pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, so... Your work occupies this really interesting combination of philosophy, cognitive science, and psychedelics. And on one hand, this is a really exciting time to be at that intersection, right? There's kind of a, a psychedelic renaissance going on. There's contemplative neuroscience is kind of coming into its own as a, as a field of study. Um, there are also a host of kind of mental health crises that seem to be getting worse while our paradigms of understanding and dealing with them are stagnating. Um, and we seem to be talking about things like spirituality again, or, or questions that go beyond uh, purely material, you know, notions of well-being. But on the other hand, it's it's still a pretty unusual bag of of interests that you have. So <laughs> I wanted to start out by by asking, you know, 
why these three domains? How do they weave together for you? And then what are the kind of underlying questions that drive you into this area of, of research? Sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, it might be an unusual bag of interest in the sense of being sort of atypical or statistically abnormal, but to me, they seem like the most natural um, bedfellows in the world. Historically, where uh, the way it's gone is I was originally interested in mysticism and meditation and this kind of thing before I ever formally studied philosophy and before I was interested in psychedelic. But I think, you know, an interest in mysticism and meditation typically goes along um, with an interest in philosophical questions, right? Because people mm. often pursue these sorts of practices to try and find experiential answers to deep questions about um, the self and identity and meaning and purpose and, and value and this sort of thing. So, you know, so I was heavily involved in Buddhism in my late teens and that ultimately um, led me to study philosophy, this sort of interest in Buddhism and mysticism and this desire to know which of these varying worldviews actually was true. Um, and then my studies of philosophy led me ultimately to cognitive science because I became a convinced naturalist, right? I, I became persuaded by the view that the natural world is all there is and also that there is no sort of special distinctive philosophical method um, that is kind of separate and apart from the methods of the sciences that, um, you know, to really learn about what the world is like, philosophy and the sciences have to partner together in an, you know, ultimately mm -hmm. empirically driven sort of uh, investigation of the world. Um, and so then, you know, I've, I was interested in issues about the mind, philosophical issues about the mind. But if you take that sort of methodological stance, you're going to think that to learn to answer philosophical questions about the mind, you need to look at some cognitive science and neuroscience and things like that. So I was sort of chugging along, you know, interested in philosophical questions um, about the mind and questions about cognitive science. And then I became, you know, aware of the sort of history of research on psychedelics. Um, and that seemed to me to connect with a lot of these interests, right? So it connected with my longstanding interest in mysticism and contemplative practice and altered states because of the, the sort of propensity that psychedelics have for inducing these kinds of experiences. And it also connected with my sort of philosophical interest in using cognitive science and neuroscience as a source of evidence about the mind, right? Because, you know, mm. um, sections of philosophy of mind in the last two or three decades have become highly interdisciplinary and have drawn on evidence from psychiatry and neuroscience and so on. And it, it seemed remarkable to me that there was so little philosophical interest in um, using the psychedelic state as a source of evidence for theorizing about mm. the mind. So that's sort of how the, the threads all came together, biographically speaking. Yeah. So I think I'd like to lay out something of a roadmap up front for what I what I hope we'll cover today, because there's a lot of technical cognitive science stuff, but it, but it all hangs together in a larger narrative about spirituality, about consciousness. And I think it might be helpful to have a, a kind of preview of, of that narrative up front before getting into the specifics for, for listeners. I mean, sure. obviously, we can deviate as much as we like, but something of, of a three-part story that I think moves through your work. The first part is regards kind of self-models and your predictive self-binding account. So you advance a, a theory of the self of what self-consciousness is and how the experience of being a self arises from cognitive processes. Uh, in particular, you bring together theories of the brain's predictive processing system and something known as cognitive binding and show how these are kind of at play, um, especially throughout the default mode network and the salience networks for the brain. And kind of all in harmony, the, these come together to give rise to our sense of self. Two, we kind of go from there to look at psychedelics and what you call the unbinding 
of the self model. So, so with the model of the self established, your work to, and especially in the book you have coming out looks at medium to high dose psychedelic experiences and provides a theory of of what's going on in those brain systems when people have experiences of things like ego dissolution or just more broadly uh, when people experience changes to their ordinary sense of self on psychedelics. And then moving into kind of the third leg would be this this idea of of naturalizing spirituality um, where you kind of tie a lot of this together, your, your model of the self and you look into what psychedelic experiences can teach us about consciousness and they kind of suggest a way to think about what spirituality is, what spiritual experience is, um, without assuming the existence of metaphysical entities or supernatural gods, but kind of perfectly within the the modern, secular, and naturalistic framework of thinking about how the world works. So you're, you're kind of articulating spirituality in a way that we might be able to weave it back into our 21st century worldviews. And all of this kind of turns on what the self is and what kinds of experiences arise uh, when we occasion changes to that self, uh, whether through psychedelics or meditation or whatever else, and you know what those experiences mean for our theories of consciousness and and so on. So before going further, uh, do you want to correct, expand upon, or reframe anything that I might have butchered of your work so far? Sounds perfect to me. Couldn't have put it better myself. <laughs> okay, good news. I was holding my breath. Um, <laughs> all right, let's get right into it then. So so phase one, talking about self models. Sure. Um, here already, things start to get weird. Yes. Um, you, <laughs> right, you describe this view where the self and all of reality as each of us experience it is actually an internal model, a sort of controlled hallucination that is constructed via these top-down predictive models in our brains. Um, I recently had the neuroscientist and novelist now Eric Coel on the podcast, and the way that he described it was to say that epistemologically, there's basically no difference between what you experience in a dream and what you're experiencing in, in waking reality. Both are these representations of the world generated by cognition. Um, and it's important to note that this isn't a, a weird fringe theory. This is kind of the generally accepted and prevailing view within cognitive science, maybe with a few quibbles around the edges. But you take this view as your foundation and build a model of the self that expands it. So Let's start here. What does it mean to describe the self or our experience of consciousness on the whole as an internally generated model? Yeah, so I would put it slightly differently. I wouldn't say that epistemologically waking perception and, and dreaming perception are equivalent, but I would say ontologically they are, right? So most of us, especially mm. those of us who are materialists or naturalists, you know, we might not have thought about it that hard, but if we do think about it, we sort of have no real trouble with understanding that the experiences we have in our dreams, right, the the people and the trees and tables and chairs and fantastic creatures, all these things that we seem to encounter in our nocturnal experiences are happening entirely inside of our heads, right? That's sort of a fairly mm -hmm. common sense idea. And so the thought is just that, you know, the things that we encounter in waking life as well, the objects and people and so on that we, we seem to be in contact with, are ontologically equivalent. They're exactly the same kind of thing as those virtual constructions that we encounter in dreams. They are some kind of simulation or model or virtual reality 
um, that is generated wholly inside the central nervous system. The difference is just that in waking life, um, we presume that the content of these simulations or these models is actually being strongly regulated and governed by actual input coming in from the real objective world, right? So it's not a kind of solipsistic view or an idealistic view. The assumption is that we are real biological animals. We are organisms living in a genuine objective mind independent reality. But the thought is very close to the sort of classic philosophical views like indirect realism um, in that the idea is that the only sort of access we have, I mean, words like access and so on can become very slippery and problematic in this context. But the thought mm. is what presents itself to us as being our experience of this world is actually a sort of simulated experience of the world that's generated wholly inside the brain. And so the Finnish cognitive neuroscientist and philosopher, Andy Ravonsoy, puts it really nicely. He says, our brains give us a convincing out-of-brain experience, right? They give us <laughs> an experience as of simply being this body, this animal, this organism that is just inhabiting this world, but the experience itself is totally a virtual reality that is happening within the brain of that animal. Yeah. So one one issue I have trying to kind of wrap my head around this, maybe you can help clear it up. Uh, so let's say I'm having a dream and in the dream, there's a hot pan on the stove. I walk up to it. I touch the hot pan. It's burning. My hand recoils. And, and that's the experience I had. The, like like you said, there's no external stimuli that my, I'm not actually touching a hot, a hot pan in, in waking reality. That was entirely generated. Now, in, in waking reality, let's say like right now I get up into the kitchen and I see a hot pan on the stove, my brain is going to kind of have this predictive model going. It's going to think it's hot. It's going to assume if I touch it, I would have that same experience. So let's say I go and I do touch that hot pan in the waking world and it's really hot. I recoil my hand. Am I reacting to stimuli that my brain has kind of generated? Did my brain say that's going to be hot and create like a simulacrum of that experience? Or am I, am I reacting to a real objective kind of hot molecule in the external world? Yeah, a bit of both. Um, I mean, the, the way to think about it would be that, yes, your experience, the pain sensation itself is something that is generated inside your brain. That is a purely internal experience. It's part of this predictive model. But the reason it persists until you um, withdraw your hand is because it's congruent with the actual, it's a successful model. It's congruent with the actual objective input that is coming into your brain mm. from um, the genuinely hot pan. So it's both. And so then when the objective organism that is you moves its hand away, it's correct to say that the organism is reacting to a real hot pan in the external world right because there is a, a causal chain that leads from the pan being hot to certain events happening in the nervous system of the organism to the organism then withdrawing its hand right so yes um the the creature that you are is reacting to um an objectively hot pan but a core part of the you know an inelimitable part of the mechanism the causal mechanism by which that creature reacts to that thing involves an internal um simulation of this kind of unpleasant sensation this unpleasant experience and um without that uh you're not going to get the same objective behavioral result mm, so maybe in, in that case when i'm approaching the hot pan in the waking world uh my brain is kind of it's predictive processing is kicked online it's kind of making its predictions and maybe maybe that would preempt the objective stimuli i go mm. i touch and i'm reacting to my brain's prediction but as it kind of gets those that input from the real world that it is correct that it's hot it's kind of confirmed in its predictive theory and learns to kind of trust itself is that kind of like a, a feedback loop that it that it persists in 
Yeah, that's right. Models that predict incoming input accurately get reinforced and their, their probability gets increased. But, you know, I mean, these are interesting questions. So it needn't be that your model actually preempts, sort of predictively preempts the input. It could be that, you know, the input comes in, right? The the sort of um, nociceptive input, the pain input or the, the thermal input or whatever. And in the the first instance, that generates a prediction error because it's not being predicted by any of your current models. But then that is very rapidly and outside of your conscious awareness going to recruit a model. So the brain is going to cycle through its kind of set of templates, set of possible models that could kind of account for this unpredicted surprising input. And it's very quickly before you have any idea what's happened going to settle on the model that, you know, this is a a hot sensation. So it needn't actually sort of... um, issue generate the prediction before any input from the objective stimulus comes in it can be that the input from the objective stimulus comes in and generates a prediction error signal that very quickly leads to the recruitment of a, um, a matching model mm, yeah that makes sense okay so our experience of waking reality is this kind of internally controlled uh, hallucination but the hallucination is occurring to someone, right? There's a kind of perspectival dimension to to experience that it's happening to me, that there's an I that's kind of the gravitational center of my experience of consciousness. And what feels very novel and exciting about your theory that you go into in the book, and, and you've published a few papers on this, is how these two cognitive processes, predictive processing and cognitive binding, kind of together are involved in this process of, of giving rise to that self. So on this view, what are, we've kind of touched on predictive processing, but how does cognitive binding kind of fit into the mix and how do these things kind of work together to give rise to that construction of the self? Yeah. So I should say to just put my pedantic philosopher's hat on, um, I, I deny. So what you just said is that all this experience, this internal simulation or controlled hallucination is happening to someone. That's actually Mm. something I categorically deny. I say it's Ah, not happening to anyone, but it feels like it is for all the world. It seems as though there is someone inside, um, some entity, some subject to whom this is all being presented. Um, and that, uh, for me is all sort of part of the, the grand illusion, but yeah, where does it come from? So you've got this idea of um, cognitive binding that's been around in the, the neurosciences and the cognitive sciences since the 1980s. And it's basically the idea that we know even in basic perceptual processing that different features of objects are processed in different areas of the cortex so things like color and shape and motion and so on and yet in perception we don't experience these kind of disconnected um, free-floating properties we experience all of these properties as unified or integrated in a single object we experience you know a ball that is round and red and located at this particular point and all those properties cluster together in that object and so the binding problem is the question really of of how does that happen? How does the brain actually manage to do that? Um, And the reason the binding problem or this idea of cognitive binding, so that's that's basically what cognitive binding refers to is just this integration of representational parts into representational holes by the brain. And um, as I say, it was originally introduced to kind of talk about this notion of basic perceptual feature binding, so binding these sort of low-level, especially visual features of objects into a kind of coherent 
object representation, but it's since been um, extrapolated and extended, and, and the idea is now very widespread that binding processes happen at sort of hierarchically nested levels, right? So once your brain has integrated kind of feature representations into object representations, it might then integrate or bind those object representations into event representations. You know, there's temporal binding where... Mm representations of the same object are integrated over time and um there's uh yeah context binding in which events are kind of integrated with representations of the the broader context or situation in which they happen so there is just this generic phenomenon of integrating representational parts into coherent representational wholes so um all my work on this has been uh, the stuff on the self and cognitive binding. This has all been kind of um, done collaboratively with Philip Gerens, a you know a mentor and co-author of mine at the University of Adelaide. And um, where the idea came from, and it, I, I have to credit him, it was his idea initially. There was this research by the psychologists Swee and Humphreys, basically showing reviewing a whole bunch of evidence that. Um, information that is related to the self gets integrated or bound more quickly, more efficiently, and more strongly, right? So no matter whether the information is kind of abstract or concrete, no matter what sensory modality you're experiencing it in, if you perceive it as related to me or related to I, then it's going to be processed more quickly, integrated more efficiently, bound more efficiently, and then it's going to be um, di more difficult to kind of unbind it afterwards, right? So once you've associated a neutral shape like a triangle or a circle or something like that with yourself, then it's harder afterwards to kind of um, associate it with somebody else than if you've just associated it with a random stranger or with something else first. It's much harder to sort of – so they, they put this in terms of a, a sticky trace from self-binding. But they basically came up with this idea that, you know, this is a core part of what – self-representation is for right so why does the human brain generate a representation or a model of the self um this has been hotly debated you know the nature and the function of self-representation and swee and humphreys had this idea that a core function that it has is for the integration of information right that we've got information across all these um sensory modalities and experiential modalities information across all these different levels of abstraction and levels of processing and it's really useful to be able to integrate all the information that is related to the self to maintain this coherent model that can then serve kind of decision making and planning and action and so on and so yeah they published this paper with this idea of the integrative self in which they introduce the concept of um, self-binding um, but they don't really offer a very detailed story about how this process of self-binding works so the thought that um philip initially had and that then he and i developed together in relation to the psychedelic evidence is that if you take this idea of self-binding the idea that a core function of self-representation or self-modeling is to integrate or bind self-related information and then combine that with the predictive processing theory then you get a very compelling story that can explain among other things, a lot of what we see in psychedelic experience, these experiences of ego dissolution and so on that people report. And um, this is because the predictive processing framework, um, you know, we've been talking about its view of conscious experience as a controlled hallucination, but it also has um, a very interesting and elegant story about cognitive binding and how that works. So, yeah. Yeah. Here's, here's a a quote from your book on this that I loved, and it, and it speaks to this. You wrote, if the predictive self-binding account is on the right track, then each of us, whether we are introspectively aware of it or not, 
experiences ourselves as a Cartesian substance, a simple, indivisible, and persistent mental entity that undergoes experiences, thinks thoughts, feels feelings, and authors actions. But no such entity exists, as you just uh, corrected me earlier. Mm. Moreover, that which we habitually take for our immediate unproblematic existence is no more than a virtual simulacrum or phenomenal avatar conjured by the brain for purposes of prediction and control. When a high degree of opacity is introduced into the phenomenal self-model by psychedelics or other means, there is something real that we learn. It may not be exactly that the self does not exist, but what we learn at least is that the experience we have been mistaking for our very being is no more than a contingent and fragile mental construction. And this idea of, of transparency and opacity is very crucial, um, where usually we don't experience the contingency and the constructed nature of our self-models. We don't see them as models. It's transparent. It's just us. Uh, but psychedelics or meditation or other means can sometimes make parts or maybe, depending who you ask all, uh, of these kind of transparent models opaque, and we can see them as models. Uh, it's kind of like if you, if you were born out of the womb with glasses on. And so your experience of vision was always just whatever it looked like through those glasses and you had no clue you were wearing any. And then maybe one day, you know, you're 33 years old and the first time in your life you see a mirror and you notice you have these weird things on your eyes mm. and you take them off and everything looks different. And you realize that those glasses have been mediating your perception of reality and that you can actually uh, tint the lenses and everything will look pink. It changes a little. And so there's this kind of realization that you can participate in the deconstruction and then the the reconstruction of those glasses or in this case of the self model which changes the experience so i wanted to ask you a bit to elaborate on the roles of, of transparency and opacity in in the self why is the self such a transparent model and what what does it mean to make that model opaque yeah so i mean a lot of this um in a lot of this stuff i'm drawing heavily leaning heavily on the work of thomas metzinger who has been writing about these issues for years and you know it goes back to his um magnum opus being no one this book from mm -hmm. 2003 in which you know he has this this kind of picture of self-modeling that is heavily influenced and informed by the neurosciences and also by the study of psychedelics and by contemplative practices such as meditation and he makes a very big deal of these notions of phenomenal transparency and opacity and i should say look the notion of um, transparency has a fairly long history and philosophy of mind it goes back about a century to ge more and it's been understood in a number of different ways right and so i just adopt this very simple simple definition of it which is how metzinger defines it in some places as just a representation a mental representation or a mental model is transparent to the extent that we don't experience it as a model but simply as reality itself and um, therefore it's correspondingly opaque to the degree that we experience it as a model rather than um, as reality. And so the contrast can most easily be seen by looking at non-lucid and lucid dreams, right? So I'm going to assume that most mm. um, listeners are familiar with lucid dreams in which one is aware that one is dreaming. And so basically, if you're having a non-lucid dream, you don't know you're dreaming, your representations are wholly transparent. You've got no idea that they're kind of mental simulations. You just feel as though you're directly um, and immediately present in a world that is full of whatever kind of objects and creatures and events you're encountering. 
But then at the moment of attaining lucidity, um, all these mental representations, these mental models um, switch from full-blown transparency to full-blown opacity. And suddenly you are vividly aware that the entire seeming world in which um, you're kind of having these experiences is all just this mental construction or simulation. So that's what opacity is. Um, and the thought is that, yes, yeah, similar things are actually possible in waking life, once again, because we've got this ontological equivalence between dream experience and waking experience, that they're both this sort of wholly um, internally constructed simulation or virtual reality, then it's possible in waking life to um, have the same sort of experience, to go from, if you like, non-lucid waking to lucid waking and suddenly realise that, you know, all of this is in fact a simulation, a purely mental construction. And um, as Metzinger points out, you know, this idea is very close to a lot of the descriptions you see in sort of classical Buddhist meditation texts, you know, that you mm -hmm. need to kind of realise that the self-model in particular, I mean, you know, it, it's not always confined to the self-model. Some of these classic texts do seem to generalise this to one's entire experience of the world. But in Buddhism in particular, there's a lot of focus on the self and a lot of focus on realising that uh, the thing that, you know, you, the experience that you call I, the experience that leads you to sort of use the first-person pronoun and gives you a sense of your existence as an experiencing entity, a subjective experience and some kind of um, entity entity that persists throughout time, that this experience is far from just some kind of uh, immediate, uh, unproblematic experience of an entity, is actually some kind of fragile, um, constructed simulation. That's a good landing place. Uh, it's very similar to, um, I was just revisiting Evan Thompson's book, uh, Waking, Dreaming, Being. Right. Uh, if, if anyone's not familiar, he's in a very similar space, very steeped in, in Indian philosophy, cognitive science. And at, at the last page of that book, he kind of, he says, he gives his take on what enlightenment is. And for him, it's very similar to this kind of lucid waking. Um, and, and we'll revisit that. Right. And so, yeah, so Metzinger says, says similar things, actually. You know, he sort of talks about the classical descriptions of awakening or enlightenment as sort of introducing complete and permanent um, phenomenal opacity into the self-model. Yeah. yeah. So in your theory of the self, you in addition to the two kind of uh, mechanisms there, you highlight two systems, uh, networks of, of brain regions that are involved in the process, the default mode network and the salience network. And we don't need to get too deep into the weeds of them, but you do point out how each of them are, seem to be responsible or heavily associated with a particular kind of selfhood, um, that the self is not one single homogenous entity, but there are layered kind of, uh, there are layers to it as an experience. So I, I wanted to ask you if you could just give us an idea of those different kinds of selfhood that are associated with each particular brain network. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, there's a, a broad kind of twofold distinction. I mean, the discussions of self-awareness and self-representation can get very kind of complex. And there, you know, philosophers and neuroscientists have distinguished many different aspects or varieties or facets of self-representation. But on a broad level, it can be helpful to just distinguish between what's sometimes called narrative or autobiographical selfhood or sense of self. And on the other hand, um, the so-called minimal or embodied sense of self. And it's really easy to get the contrast just by thinking of cases of uh, profound retrograde amnesia, right? So if someone has 
completely lost their sense of who they are, you know, their name, personality, autobiographical facts, all this sort of stuff. Um, typically, they're still going to have a sense of being someone, right? They might not know who they are, but they know that they are someone. They still have a mm-hmm. sense of being an entity who is present here and now at a particular point in space and time in a particular body undergoing experiences. And so that's the sort of thing that, you know, it's probably possible to decompose that into many different facets too, but that's the the kind of thing that is typically referred to as the minimal or the embodied sense of self, just that sense of being a subject of experience, an entity who is experiencing at a moment in time, at a point in space. And then this um, narrative or autobiographical sense of self is the, the sense of being being a specific person, an individual with a distinctive identity and personality and um, trajectory through life and that kind of thing. And, yeah, like it's um, no doubt a bit of an oversimplification because these processes are extraordinarily complex, but there does seem to be this fairly robust association of the narrative or autobiographical sense of self with the set of brain regions known as the default mode network and then with the minimal or embodied sense of self and the set of regions known as the salience network. And so that's a key. Those kind of associations are part of what, um, yeah, Philip and I drew on as well in developing our account of self-binding and psychedelics. And I've then um, talked more about in the book the idea that the self-model, in fact, has a hierarchical structure, right? Because one of the key claims of this predictive processing model of cognition is that uh, the brain's model of the world in general has a hierarchical structure. And so lower levels of the model model more concrete features that sort of um, – shorter spatiotemporal scales and the further up you go the more abstract are the kind of features of the world that it's cottoning onto and the greater the spatiotemporal scales and we sort of applied that to self-representation and said look you know we also keep track of ourself at multiple levels of abstraction and spatiotemporal scales right so we experience ourselves and represent ourselves as the the one who is having this experience right now, the one who is here in this place at this time, um, thinking this thought or hearing these sounds or seeing these sights. And then we also represent ourselves as, you know, the one who has to give a presentation next week or the one who um, had that particularly interesting experience last week. And then at higher and higher levels, we represent ourselves as having quite core, enduring sort of what we take to be fundamental personality traits or attributes or values or whatever. And so we said, well, you know, the fact that you've got this seemingly selective association of these two networks with different aspects of um, self-modeling or self-representation fits well with the idea that self-modeling, predictive self-modeling is hierarchical. It's got this hierarchical structure like other predictive models with um, different levels of abstraction and different spatiotemporal scales at which um, things are being represented. Yeah, wonderful. Uh, So I think that's a good place then. Let's move on to the the second leg of, of the three-part story, which is looking at psychedelic unbinding. And I, I think a good place, let's start at the beginning, which is kind of the, the molecular and chemical level of, of psychedelics, which is pretty interesting. You look at the, the classical psychedelics, which includes LSD, mushrooms, DMT, um, mescaline, and, and these all seem to have the same neuro, uh, neurochemical mechanism, which is that they, they act upon the serotonin receptor in the brain. Is that kind of the main big ticket thing going on neurochemically that they just stimulate this same serotonin receptor? 
Yeah, that seems to be basically it, the serotonin 2A receptor. So there are differences between their um, pharmacological profiles, you know, like so um, mescaline I think is relatively and and, um, some similar substances are relatively pharmacologically simple and then some of the tryptamines like psilocybin have affinity for some more different types of receptors, the serotonin 1A receptor and stuff like this. But, yeah, there's pretty good evidence now that the vast majority of the psychoactive effects are mediated just by yeah the activation of this well not just by the activation of the serotonin 2a receptor if you really want to get into it there are serotonin 2a receptor agonists that don't seem to induce a psychedelic state so it seems as though Mm. you've got to activate the serotonin 2a receptor and recruit a specific type of um, intracellular signaling pathway but nonetheless yeah that seems to be the mechanism that that mediates and so if you administer these substances but previously you administer a, um, an antagonist that blocks that receptor, then you get hardly any of the subjective effects. So, yeah, the uh, right. level of neurochemistry, neuropharmacology, it all seems to be mediated basically through serotonin 2A receptor activation. Yeah. So, okay, we have this chemical situation going on in the brain, and there are obviously a, a variety of phenomenological effects. People feel and report all kinds of different experiences, but the, the area you focus on are changes to the experience of the self, um, either complete dissolution or just less absolute, but still changes in the general experience. And one of the ways that you characterize these psychedelic experiences where changes to the self occur is as unbinding the self or unselfing. So what do you mean when, when you talk about unselfing? Yeah, so basically in ordinary waking cognition, the thought is you've got these predictive processes that we've talked about in the default mode and salience networks that basically are serving to bind or integrate stimuli, information from across all these different modalities, visual information, auditory information, affective and emotional information, um, you know, thoughts, cognitive information, all these um, representations from all these different modalities are being brought together, tied together, integrated by these predictive models in systems like the default mode and salience networks that represent the existence of a single simple underlying entity right and that's the the binding part so in the same way that you know we perceive a red ball at a particular point in space because certain processes in the visual system are integrating all this information about shape color size location and they're attributing it all to a single entity that those properties are bound to the thought is that the same thing is happening uh, with the self our sense of being this kind of um, single simple unitary self is being generated by these predictive processes that integrate multimodal stimuli into this model of a single underlying entity and basically when psychedelics hit the serotonin 2a receptor this um, starts off this complex cascade of processes which has been shown to include things like um, desynchronization so reductions in the power of synchronous neural oscillations in these networks in certain frequency Mm. bands and also a sort of general disintegration of these networks so the patterns of connectivity or communication between the nodes of these systems alter Um, often what you see is uh, less communication between the nodes within these networks accompanied by more communication across networks Um, and then so the thought is that this disrupts this process of integrating uh, multimodal information into a coherent unified model of the self and depending on the prior state of the the cognitive system so what's called set um and then depending on the environment the setting the sort of inputs that are coming into the system uh, this can have many different results right so it might have the result of a sort of 
blurring or weakening of the bodily boundaries. People might report saying, you know, um, I can no longer tell exactly where I end and the rest of the world begins. Um, it might have the effect, you know, if there's some sort of perturbation to the narrative self, it might have the effect of um, bringing people sort of right into the present and they sort of stop having very many thoughts about the past and future. It might have the effect of giving them some kind of sense of autobiographical insight, some kind of long forgotten memory resurfacing or suddenly having some new perspective on a situation in their lives or a problem they've been having. It might have the effect, you know, at high doses of just um, inducing something like a complete obliteration of all sense of being a separate individual. Um, and, you know, you get the phenomenology of what's called full-blown ego dissolution or ego death. And then very often this occurs in the context of a, a mystical type experience characterized by transcendence of time and space and this deep positive mood and this noetic quality. So I sort of subsume all these different psychedelic induced disruptions to the sense of self under this umbrella of, yeah, unselfing or self-unbinding. The thought is that they all result basically from disruption to these hierarchical computational processes that integrate information into a model of a persistent underlying self, um, but the exact nature and the extent of the disruption can vary quite a bit depending on a lot of factors, and it's that variance that leads to this whole different range of experiences you can get yeah your your view here kind of takes the rebus model the the relaxed beliefs under psychedelics model that was developed by robin carhart harris and, and builds on it and expands it and i think it's interesting to see them in play together could you give us a quick idea of i guess what the rebus model is and then where you depart from it or or build forward from it Sure, yeah. So, um, yeah, they are very similar. So the Rebus model of Carhart, Harrison, Friston, relaxed belief under psychedelics is also um, situated in uh, against the background of this hierarchical predictive processing model, the idea that the brain has this hierarchical model of the world. It represents the world and the self at different levels of abstraction and um, different spatiotemporal scales. And the model is very simple. It just says that the main effect of psychedelics at moderate to high doses is to decrease the brain's confidence in its own highest level, most abstract and fundamental beliefs about the world. So um, it's part of the predictive processing story, right, that the brain needs to estimate the kind of reliability of its own various information sources, right? So it needs to have a model of how confident am I in my prior beliefs about the world and how confident am I in the various inputs that I'm getting in order to kind of balance those against each other and trade them off and decide when you've got a prediction error, when you've got some kind of unpredicted input, does this mean I need to change my beliefs about the world, update my assumptions, or can I just ignore this input? Is it just a piece of noise where I can maintain my confidence in the, the prior belief? And so, mm. and you, you can see this kind of balance, right, in interesting visual illusions like the hollow mask illusion where, you know, we're presented with a, a mask of the human face in the concave orientation, but it still pops out and appears convex to us us um, and the idea is well in the human brain there is such a, a deep-seated assumption such a heavily weighted prior belief that human faces are convex that this evidence that's inconsistent with that is just treated as untrustworthy by the brain you've got this case of a mm -hmm. conflict between a prior belief and um, an input signal and in this case the, the brain is so confident in the prior belief that it just feels able to dismiss the input signal and say no no that's just noise i know what's really going on here it's this kind of model that i have of something that looks like this um so the rebus model says basically 
all of the kind of distinctive, famous, typical, well-known effects of psychedelics essentially result from disruption to the highest levels of this processing hierarchy, so this kind of representational disintegration and this neural desynchronization right up the top levels at these kind of uh, multimodal integration areas that are distant from the, the sensory periphery. Um, and, yeah, that essentially has the effect of relaxing, um, taking out of action or weakening the brain's confidence in its own most fundamental beliefs. And that's going to include beliefs about, you know, I exist, I am a self, I am an entity distinct from the rest of the world, and also beliefs about things like space, time, causality, um, the laws of logic, all the really fundamental assumptions that um, have been pointed out by numerous philosophers over the centuries as kind of structuring and constraining our experience of the world and, you know, seemingly being kind of preconditions for, uh, well, some have claimed that they're, they're preconditions for any kind of experience, but um, we might want to be a bit more cautious about that claim in light of the, the psychedelic hmm. evidence, but seemingly being preconditions for most of the kinds of experience that we are familiar with and that we know how to think and talk about. So that's the general Rebus model, psychedelics, relax high-level abstract beliefs, and that's what gives you the various phenomenological effects that you get. And in a way, the predictive self-binding account that Philip and I have come up with is just a special case of that, right? It's sort of the same basic idea. Psychedelics um, disrupt processing at the highest levels of the predictive hierarchy, um, and this kind of weakens or relaxes uh, the brain's confidence in those high-level prior beliefs. But of course, we focus specifically on beliefs about the self, and we have some additional claims about the structure and the functions of this self-model, how it actually works and what it does. And this includes, you know, we've already talked about the idea that it's um, got these particular neural substrates, the sort of narrative or autobiographical sense of self is mostly being represented in the default mode network, um, the uh, minimal or embodied sense of self in the salience network. We've got this idea that there's a binding function going on, right, that by kind of modeling or representing the existence of this simple underlying entity, this me who is undergoing experience these networks these systems perform a cognitive binding or integration function bringing together um, and unifying all this information from across different modalities another thing which is really important i think to the effects of psychedelics is the idea that um yeah, you mentioned the phrase earlier, we talk about the self-model as a centre of representational gravity. And um, part of that means, you know, in, in some very straightforward senses, the self-model is the point around which our models of the world are constructed. You can see this obviously mm. on a, a very basic kind of um, perceptual sensory motor level, right? We experience the perceptual world, the spatial world, relative to a central point um, from which it's apprehended. So it is literally um, represented as a self-centered world. And that fact in itself actually is something that we just take so much for granted but becomes quite sort of striking and puzzling when you start to look at it carefully. But our thought was, look, you know, the phenomenal world, the simulation of a world that um, the brain generates for us is self-centered in more abstract ways than that too, right? So if you look at the level of... Um, emotion and salience and attention basically different things in the world kind of capture our attention differentially right so um, you might walk into a room and suddenly your attention is drawn out of a crowd to one particular person because you know them or they have some significance for you or your attention is drawn to a particular picture or um, statue or something like that because it resonates with some experience in your past and then 
other stimuli. There's maybe a plant that is kind of striking someone else and that their attention is drawn to, and you're utterly oblivious. You've got no idea it's even there, right? And um, this sort of phenomenon um, is just happening all the time. You know, our attention is drawn automatically without our being uh, aware of the underlying processes to particular stimuli, and then other things are simply ignored, written off, deemed irrelevant. And um, this obviously depends on some kind of model of the self too, right? So if the brain is going to um, single out particular stimuli as warranting attention as being kind of meaningful and relevant, then it has to have some model of um, what my goals are, what my interests are, what things are important to me in order to then um, perform this process of salience attribution and attention allocation. And then at even higher levels, we've got these kind of autobiographical narratives in which, you know, it's not a question of objective accuracy or inaccuracy, but our stories of our lives always have a protagonist, right? They are always constructed Mm -hmm. um, in a way that makes reference to the fortunes and the the changing kind of the evolving journey of one particular entity, one particular person. And the story is sort of thoroughly um, structured and organized around that protagonist. And so, yeah, this is sort of the, the additional emphasis that our account has beyond the general Rebus model is to say that, look, you know, Self-modeling plays this incredibly important structuring and constraining uh, role in that our phenomenal world models are self-centered in all these different respects and that the model of the self governs the attribution of salience, what we feel to be meaningful and important, and the allocation of attention, so what we focus on and what we ignore. And so the thought is that um, key parts of the psychedelic experience can also be explained by disruption to those processes, disruption to the processes of um, salience attribution, you know, that obviously the salience network is involved in, um, and processes of attention allocation that both that and the default mode network seem to have a role in. Yeah, yeah, that's wonderfully put, very helpful. Um, okay, so this this might be a bit of a digression, but uh, this is the fun of having a podcast where you can subject guests to your own melting pot of interests. Love um, a good digression. Let's digress. <laughs> love a good digression. Um, some, I did this with uh, another cognitive scientist I had on the show a while back, John Verveke, and it was a lot of fun. I looked at a phenomena coined by the cultural theorist Mark Fisher, uh, which he called capitalist realism from the perspective of cognitive science. And so capitalist realism is the claim made by Fisher that the neoliberal capitalist system, which sprang up in the early 1970s um, across largely the, the developed world, the US, the UK, and has remained dominant for a number of decades, that it has systematically eroded our capacity to imagine anything other. Now, I, I think there's a really interesting way to read your work that sort of substantiates a lot of what Fisher was talking about. And I'd like to, to briefly lay it out and see if you can sense any problems with the logic or if you can expand on it at all. All right, sure. Um, <laughs> we'll take a shot at it. Sure. So your model, among many others, sees cognition as both enabled and also constrained by its priors, right? These beliefs that you've been talking about. And yeah. you write that these priors or these abstract beliefs, quote, constrain cognition in several ways. Most basically, they limit the brain's hypothesis space. Hyper priors constrain cognition by deeming many logically possible and indeed logically impossible worlds so improbable that they become cognitively and phenomenologically impossible, end quote. So these hyper priors, which are these kind of learned inferences the brain adopts, 
uh, presumably from from pretty early on in life, but on an ongoing basis, kind of define the space of hypotheticals that that it becomes even possible to cognitively entertain that get through your predictive system. Now, if Fisher's capitalist realism is anything more than like flashy rhetoric, there has to be a way that this kind of cognitive constraint, this this adoption of priors, can be transmitted at the collective scale. As in, and, and I actually think this is pretty uncontroversially accepted, that cultures can kind of transmit these sorts of hyper priors to the individuals that comprise it. Yeah. Um, this process of, of enculturation kind of participates in shaping the possibility or the hypothesis space in each of our consciousnesses. So first, uh, does it make sense to you to apply this model of thinking about certain constructed priors that limit not only an, an individual's possibility space from their own personal lives, but but on a larger scale at kind of the cultural level. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, totally. I mean, I don't have strong views one way or the other about these specific claims about um, neoliberalism and so on. But yeah, the, the idea, as you say, that cultures transmit priors to individuals and that therefore uh, methods like psychedelics that can um, downregulate and weaken priors and expand the possibility space like this would be ways of allowing people to imagine things, imagine worlds, see possibilities that otherwise are rendered impossible by, among other things, culturally transmitted priors. Yeah, that seems absolutely right to me. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you write a lot about Thomas Kuhn's book, the the structure of scientific revolutions, which right. describes how you know paradigm shifts happen in science. And yeah, it seems like one of the things that a paradigm shift does is it's shuffling. It's what you just described. It shuffles around and changes those cultural priors that that define that hypothetical possibility space. So, is there a sense in which a paradigm shift is really the rebus model applied at scale. It's kind of collective swapping out of priors and and creating new spaces within that that kind of cognitive hypothetical space. I mean, so I, I did it the other way around, right? In the book, I claim that uh, the rebus model or the, the unbinding model is the idea of a paradigm shift applied at micro scale. So I, <laughs> I guess I have to be committed to going the other way. Um, you want to be logically consistent, yeah. <laughs> yeah, ex except that, you know, I didn't mean by saying any of that to sort of um, commit myself to all the details of Kuhn's account, you know. I mean, the first thing mm -hmm. to say is you seem to be talking about paradigm shifts on the level of an entire cultural society, whereas he talks about them as far as i know on the level of an individual scientific discipline or subfield um so mm -hmm. i would be i would be kind of wary about talking you know i'm not not saying there's not something like it but i would be wary about extending his ideas automatically to the idea of a paradigm for an entire society or culture yeah i mean there's a lot of detail in his view that is kind of that i don't necessarily want to commit myself to it's just sort of this the basic structure if you look at what he says at an abstract level that you sort of um have this partly tacit set of assumptions about what questions you're interested in and what um, things should be done and, and how to what kinds of things exist and how to go on right um and then mm. you kind of encounter a bunch of anomalies a bunch of kind of phenomena that you're dominant paradigm your set of assumptions can't really account for then that can be if that gets to a sufficient level if the kind of number or importance of the intractable anomalies gets sufficiently great then that can start to cast doubt on the paradigm cast doubt on your core set of assumptions uh, but then that crisis in which you start to lose faith or lose confidence in those assumptions i mean so you know i do think a lot of uh, <laughs> the details of his account fit really nicely that's why i use the analogy um, mm -hmm. and especially where he talks about you know in 
periods of crisis and periods of revolutionary science, fundamentals suddenly come back on the table, whereas previously they had been um, closed off. They're sort of treated as unquestioned and not even noticed by scientists. I mean, this this corresponds very well to the Rebus model uh, and the psychedelic state. And then, you know, what I was really sort of seizing at, the, the real, the main thing that I wanted to use his view to illustrate is this idea that psychedelic therapy has this two-factor structure, right, that it's not enough just to take the dominant paradigm offline and kind of induce this period of, of representational crisis or whatever, that you actually need a replacement. And this is a point that he mm. made about, um, yeah, revolutionary science and periods of crisis in scientific fields that, you know, you don't abandon, scientists don't abandon the old paradigm until they've got a viable new one to replace it. And that seemed to me like a really important point to make about psychedelic therapy because some models of psychedelic therapy sort of emphasise the fact that it creates this period of plasticity, that it creates this sort of cognitive flexibility. And um, I think that that's only half the story, right? That if that's all you do, then all you do is create the conditions, the possibility of change, but that doesn't create the, the reality of change. To create the reality of change, you've got to have both the period of plasticity and then somewhere new to go, some new kind of um, way of going on, way of seeing yourself, um, way of interpreting the world to replace the old one. Um, so that's sort of those are the abstract points of, of Kuhn's account that I um, really was trying to seize on there with that analogy. Do I therefore think that, you know, paradigm changes are the rebus model at scale? Maybe. <laughs> Maybe something <laughs> like that. Enough. Yeah. <laughs> it's the I best mean, the, you're going to get out of me today. <laughs> that's plenty. Uh, you know, the, the psychedelic model, it, it offers an interesting way to think about how to combat these overly constricted priors, right? One of the things you write is that by diminishing the brain's confidence in its foundational axioms, psychedelics expand the phenomenological possibility space, which leaves me wondering that, you know, maybe there, there's a sweet spot for how rigid we want our priors to be. And something that Fisher's gesturing towards with his, his critique of capitalist realism is he's suggesting that we've overshot the balance in terms of our economic priors, our imagination, and that the assumptions that create the boundaries of possibility within our cognition um, are, are growing overly rigid. And there's kind of a, an ongoing process there, but we can leave that for someone else to dig up. No, I was just going to say it's interesting because, you know, the, the original presentation of the entropic brain theory by Robin Carhart Harrison Co. contains this idea, and I, I don't think it's their original idea. I think other people have said this too, but the idea that, you know, mental health, mental wellness is about some, you know, optimal balance between sort of um, mm. rigidity and flexibility. And they point out that, you know, all the conditions that psychedelics seem to be beneficial for are ones that are characterized by cognitive rigidity. So um, mm. OCD and uh, addiction and depression, all conditions where you get stuck in a rut, you get trapped in this very kind of uh, narrow region of cognitive state space. So, yeah, I think this idea that, you know, yeah, psychedelics can you know, when used carefully, as always, and with due kind of concern and, and blah, 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 um, they can sort of right. help to get out of situations that are characterized by, yeah, too much cognitive rigidity, overly rigid priors, whatever those priors concern. Yeah. Yeah. There, it's, it's funny that you mentioned rigidity. I wasn't going to bring this up because of time, but now I have to. Um, in, <laughs> in Metzinger's book, which you mentioned, Being No One, uh, which I, I've tried to read it multiple times. I've never understood it, but I enjoy it each time. <laughs> um, in chapter six, which is like his the main show there, there's a bit where he's talking about something that he calls functional rigidity. And his basic claim is that there are 
certain types of experience often related to kind of deep primal survival related fears like if you're you know starvation or or you know you're scared for your well-being that these types of experiences are more functionally rigid and when they are when you are having them when they exist in your consciousness they kind of claim space and they're more difficult for you to exert kind of autonomy over deciding if you want to allocate attention to them or not and and it was a really interesting way of kind of carving out and you know me, I, I want to relate this to to economic concerns, but I think there's a way to draw a connection between kind of economic insecurity having this this function of of raising the general level of uh, functional rigidity within cognition, which kind of you know hardens these priors and makes it, like you said, more difficult for us to be flexible, adaptive, and and to exert our own um, kind of rational, reflective choice over what we want to allocate attention to. I always thought that was an interesting place to take that. I, I've wanted to ask Metzinger about the the functional rigidity approach, but have you had him on the podcast? No, it's that that would be that would be a crowning achievement for sure. Um, I think I'll take a couple more cracks at at his book, but that would that would definitely be lovely. And and my I've always thought if I ever do, I'm going to make him talk about economics. I don't know how. <laughs> That's my ambition. <laughs> I don't know if it'd be that hard. I think yeah, I think you could you could make that happen. He's touched it. He he wrote an essay for Aon Magazine where he said something about, you know, the neglected duty of governments to citizens has been kind of fostering the social conditions for for increasing our mental autonomy. Um, so he's he's gotten close to it. I think it's possible. Right. Right. <laughs> but anyway, returning to our our story we've been tracing here, um, we have a third category to get into. We've we've traced the psychedelics. And the third is this idea you've spoken about of of naturalizing spirituality. So psychedelics can unbind the self-model, they can loosen our priors, give us an opportunity to experience different ways that our self-models might be constructed, um, massage or loosen or untie maybe limiting or harmful beliefs that, that have been baked into them. Um, towards the end of the book, you suggest that with the psychedelic renaissance, we're entering into a golden opportunity for understanding spiritual experience. And specifically, you write, for the first time ever, scientists are in a position to safely reliably and repeatedly evoke paradigmatically spiritual experiences in the laboratory, including the neuroimaging scanner among diverse populations with differing prior beliefs and attitudes concerning spirituality. This gives us unprecedented access to high quality evidence concerning the nature, causes, and consequences of paradigmatically spiritual experiences. And this is true despite whatever similarities there are between contemplative practice like meditation and taking six grams of mushrooms, um, someone can, and, and I know this from experience, someone can meditate consistently for years and years and experience nothing much out of the ordinary. But it'd be really hard to take a big batch of mushrooms and not come out with an experience that you might categorize as spiritual. So right. let's start by asking what you mean when you say spiritual experience, because a lot of people I think would say that giving someone a pill in a lab every Wednesday and observing them feels artificial, feels like something's not quite real, right? So, so how do you define spiritual experience here? Yeah. So, um, I mean, part of the case that I'm making in the book actually is that to figure out what we mean by spirituality, we ought to look at um, what are the things that lead people to use that word, right? So, mm. 
Um, spirituality, like all words, of course, and like all concepts, has a history and it's changed over time. But my suggestion is that there's, you know, I mean, it's fairly widely recognized there's a way of using it these days that is kind of often distinguished from being religious. So people talk mm -hmm. about being spiritual but not religious and there's, you know, entire books about what it means for people to identify as spiritual but not religious. And so mm -hmm. my thought is, well, if we want to get a sense of, whether there's some unified phenomenon, some kind of robust thing um, that is a genuine kind of category that is that people are applying this term to, um, this is where psychedelic science, psychedelic research actually provides a golden opportunity because it seems like, you know, among all the people who use the word spiritual, not everyone, of course, like, but a lot of people who have this experience, even if they might have different beliefs otherwise about spirituality and what it is, this seems to be something that evokes fairly widespread agreement that you know this type of experience is spiritual if anything is um, and you get that kind of inclination to want to use that word to want to describe it in that way um, notably among people who feel like the experience revealed to them some kind of supernatural dimension of reality some transcendent ground of being and even among those who went into the experience a naturalist a materialist an atheist and came out still as one on the other side right so um, across mm. quite different worldviews and beliefs about the nature of reality you get like something like um, a, a robust but imperfect consensus that spiritual is the best word to describe these experiences. So that suggests that um, something about these experiences is central to whatever this concept, this current concept of spirituality is. It kind of gets at the heart of whatever it is that we mean by this term. And so my claim is then if you want to understand um, how we understand spirituality, what we mean by it, have a look at these experiences in particular, have a look at the types of psychedelic experience and the features of them that seem to evoke this description of being spiritual. And I argue that when you do that, you get some results that actually converge remarkably well with some recent philosophical work in this area. So, um, and basically that it's all about unselfing, that it's all about kind of somehow overcoming or reducing or going beyond the ordinary sense of self or the constraints or limits imposed by the ordinary sense of self. And so there's this really nice um, review paper by the philosopher Jerome Stone who surveys a lot of work, recent work by different authors, some philosophers, some scientists about the idea of a naturalistic spirituality, you know, something that really merits the name spirituality but is also compatible with um, a naturalistic worldview. And from all their different proposals, he extracts the idea that there are these three common themes, right? So spirituality is all about connection. Um, it's all about aspiration, the aspiration to realize our values. It's all about asking the big questions, right? The big questions about who am I and um, where did the universe come from and what is going on here and all this kind of stuff. And then he says mm. the, the thread that runs through all of these is that they're all ways of breaking down the narrow walls of the ego. They're all ways of somehow going beyond the ordinary sense of self and the limitations that it involves. Um, and mm. so to my mind, the psychedelic evidence sits really well with this because basically, um, you know, there's some quantitative evidence. Some studies have looked at, 
you know, how willing people are to describe the psychedelic experience as spiritually significant, as among the, the top most spiritually significant events of their lives. And um, they tend to be much more willing to, to say that this was one of the most spiritually significant events of my lives when they've had a mystical type experience, when their experience ticks these psychometric boxes for um, the so-called mystical type state. So that suggests to me that that's the type of experience you want to look at, right? The mystical type experience to see what it is that's kind of evoking this description of, of spirituality. And that then when you look at the mystical type experience, you find, at least as it's defined with these psychometric measures, right? What you find is that this is exactly the common thread that is running through, that it is kind of the disruption and breaking down of the ordinary sense of self and the, the constraints that it involves. And that typically this does lead to exactly those things that um, Stone talks about, right? It leads to feelings of greater connectedness. Um, it leads to a sense of aspiration to kind of um, reconnecting with one's values and kind of wanting to honor them and realize them. And it leads to reflection on the big questions. It leads to people talking about, you know, why is there something rather than nothing and what happened before the big bang and all this kind mm. of stuff. So, yeah, so that's the understanding of spirituality that I ultimately come to is that it is, um, you know, in the philosopher Iris Murdoch's term, it is about unselfing. But the argument, the distinctive argument that I give for that view is kind of a, a neurophilosophical one, an empirically based one, that if we look at um, the sorts of experiences and practices people are talking about when they, you know, uh, the, the paradigmatically spiritual ones, that this seems to be the essence of that phenomenon is uh, unselfing. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, we used to have a, I mean, I say this as if I was there, but hundreds of years ago, we had a, a pretty solid notion of what spirituality was during, you know, what, what people call the, the enchanted world, right? The world was animated with spirits. There were gods. We had very lively and kind of collectively bought into religions. Um, and then the, the disenchantment occurred where we kind of science occurred and we grew out of them. And it's a little more complicated than that, but the disenchantment occurs and, and we, we transition from this religious worldview to a, a naturalistic one that, as, as you write, eschews transcendent foundations for for meaning and value. And there's something of a, of a void left behind. And mm -hmm. I think this this notion of unselfing is a very wonderfully fitting, helpful, and an even concise way of kind of trying to introduce not only an idea but but practices that can help us kind of get back into and, and explore that space um, in a way that is kind of suited to more of our epistemological framework um, today. Uh, so yeah, one way that I read your work on spirituality is trying to shift our understanding of, of what it entails or, or necessarily entails from other worlds and these other metaphysical planes um, to other varieties of consciousness, right? Ways of constructing, deconstructing these self models to kind of occasion these really striking and important um, and therapeutic, not only on, on medical terms, but existential ones, these kind of other experiences and phenomenological realities, um, these kind of possibilities of, of conscious experience, the way mm. that um, you put it in response to the great, uh, now, is it Huston or Houston Smith? Is it Huston Hust Smith? Houston, I believe. Houston. Yeah. I've always mispronounced his name. <laughs> um, but <laughs> you wrote, Contra the late Houston Smith, the basic message of the entheogens, which is another way of referring to psychedelics, is not that there is another metaphysical reality that puts this one in the shade. It is that there are other phenomenological realities, many of which put our ordinary default mode in the shade. Could you expand on that a little? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, a lot of people do 
come out of psychedelic experiences believing that they have discovered exactly what Houston Smith said is the central message, that there is another metaphysical reality, that there is a transcendent ground of being or a cosmic consciousness or something like that. Um, I believe that that's mistaken. I believe that the best evidence and arguments that we have at the moment point in the direction of naturalism or physicalism and the idea that consciousness is somehow ultimately a product of the brain. Um, but and, you know, and it's important to note that, and this is kind of what, what provides a lot of the impetus for my arguments throughout the book, is that a lot of people who come out of psychedelic experiences profoundly moved and even demonstrably measurably transformed are not talking about having discovered another metaphysical reality that puts this one in the shade, right? Some of them are, mm. but some of them aren't. Some of them um you know, go in atheists and naturalists and come out the other side atheists and naturalists. So my thought is that even though for some people that is part of what they believe they've discovered, that can't be the essence of it, right? That can't be the core of it because all the psychometric research shows that there's a, a specific type of experience that, um, you know, tends to predict good outcomes, tends to predict lasting therapeutic and psychological benefits, and it's this you know, mystical type experience that involves the the dissolution of the separate sense of self. Uh, but it's just a fact that not everyone who is ticking the boxes for that sort of experience and is displaying kind of um, lasting personality change or symptom reduction is actually talking about having discovered another metaphysical reality. So my thought is there's got to be some common element, right? There's something that is uniting all of these, and it can't be that. It can't be the, the apparent discovery of another metaphysical plane or dimension to reality. So what is it? Well, I claim it is... Um, yeah, exactly. As you say, the discovery of other phenomenological realities. So I think that one of the most basic common um, discoveries that people make on psychedelics is things can be different, right? It can be mm. otherwise. I can be otherwise. And that's one of the things I think is, you know, that's something that I talk about under the rubric of modal knowledge, which is a philosophical term for knowledge about what's possible and what's necessary and what's impossible and so on. And this is a type of knowledge that people who have severe depression and addiction and these sorts of things often struggle to access. Um, and even if they know it intellectually, they don't really know it deep down. They don't really believe it in their heart or in their guts. Um, and I think this is, yeah, one of the core things um, that psychedelics show you is that experientially in terms of how you experience yourself and how you experience the world and how you experience the relations between the two, things can be otherwise. There are many different ways I can be, many different ways I can see things, many different ways I can relate to my experience. And that modal knowledge goes hand in hand with this um, phenomenal opacity we were talking about, right? It's all... Mm part and parcel with discovering that, you know, one's ordinary and seemingly kind of um, immediate and direct experience of self and world is in fact profoundly constructed because the fact that it's constructed means that it's mutable, it's contingent, it can be different. Um, and so that is the thing, that is the core thing that I think that everybody who has a powerfully transformative um, psychedelic experience discovers, even if some of them also believe that they have discovered various other things the core thing that they all discover is that things can be otherwise my experience can be otherwise i can be otherwise hmm. yeah wonderfully put to i think about to understand kind of this psychedelic naturalized spirituality as, as a sort of 
uh, dexterity or skillfulness with with what you're calling unselfing here. It's it's really interesting because it it puts everything on the table. Uh, everything that we experience from the design of our media platforms, the architecture of our built world, the ambient dynamics that emanate from our economic situation, the the ways that we come into contact with other people, all of these kind of panoramic aspects of of a human life act as stimuli or forces that together kind of inform consciousness or shape or influence the self model. And so all of these realms kind of become sites of, of spiritual practice in their own way of, of thinking and rethinking what kinds of self models the worlds that we inhabit tend to produce. And I like the way that I like the way that Thomas Metzinger phrases this. Um, he, a lot of what we've been talking about in his book, uh, the Eagle, Tun- the, not the Eagle tunnel, the ego <laughs> tunnel, <laughs> he wrote, uh, as soon as we concern ourselves with what a human being is, as well as what a human being ought to become, the central issue can be expressed in a single question. What is a good state of consciousness? And I know you've, you've mentioned this question elsewhere, the way that you've outlined naturalizing spirituality, this kind of democratizing of the access and skills and the stimuli required to explore this space and practice of unselfing, it, it still feels very grounded in a kind of value-neutral scientific paradigm that, that makes no normative claims about what a good state of consciousness is. So yeah. maybe as, as we move towards something of an ending here, how do you, how do you think about bridging that gap from a value-neutral scientific understanding of how consciousness or the self works to that kind of value forward philosophical stance on, on what a good state of consciousness is. I think it's very difficult and I would rather leave it to others. (laughs) (laughs) I am, you know, I, 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 I very studiously tread one particular side of that line, right? Like I Mm. am dealing with all sorts of issues in my work on psychedelics that are clearly highly policy relevant um, and ethically relevant and all this kind of stuff. But I have, um, very rarely myself explicitly engaged in yeah making any kind of normative or or value claims or arguing for any i've sort of maybe strayed slightly over the line a couple of times but you know Mm -hmm. i have done that for a variety of reasons maybe one is just that i'm scared um but (laughs) a part of it is just that i don't really see myself as an ethicist or a moral philosopher or anything like that. I mean, my primary training um, is as a philosopher of cognitive science um, and a philosopher of mind. Um, And, like, obviously I'm animated by a lot of these issues because they clearly do have relevance for values and things that we think are important and things that we think, uh, you know, that we care about. Um, But I'm sort of content whether this is a cop out or not, you know, people can decide for themselves. But <laughs> I'm I'm pretty content myself to try and you know I have my own kind of um, ethical intuitions, my own value intuitions about what is a good state of consciousness and what are good modes of attention and good ways to behave and things like that. But I'm not really personally interested in trying to kind of um, formulate those or justify those philosophically i'm more interested in trying to come up with a coherent philosophical conception of just what is going on descriptively um and then you know other people can slot that into their normative frameworks and draw some conclusions from it yeah well i I think that your your work is uh makes that incredibly it moves that project forward in many ways and it's it's funny the the kind of idea of unselfing, um, very similar to kind of the the Buddhist, the Buddhist idea of rather than telling anyone what a good state of consciousness is, it's kind of saying go and have the experience for yourself. You know, go mm-hmm. and find out. You know, where mm-hmm. where Buddha might say, sit down and find out. 
you know, here we're saying uh, in a, in a well-controlled environment, try, <laughs> try some psychedelics and find out. Turn um, or on, tune else. in and find out. <laughs> yeah, there we go. Good adjustment there. So w- one of the most striking bits of psychedelic experience is what people call their noetic quality, right? Which is this sensation. It's not an idea so much as a feeling that the kinds of experience people have on psychedelics are not uh, drug-induced hallucinations that are divorced from reality, right? Instead, they feel more real than real, as some people have put it. It feels like we're gaining insight into the world that is more real than our ordinary non-psychedelic experience of the world. And this is tricky, right? Because anything that makes us so sure of something should, should be put under sufficient scrutiny, right? Now, very often, I think in the public imagination, all psychedelic experiences are kind of phantasmagoric, right? And metaphysical in that we're contacting alien species and we're breaking through the veil of reality into a a cosmic consciousness that permeates or underlies all space-time and all these kinds of things that are kind of incongruent with the naturalistic paradigm of understanding what the universe is and, and how it works. Now, in your book, you show that even in the most potent psychedelic experiences, uh, this isn't the only kind of experience people are having, right? People just as often have incredibly transformative experiences and, and insights that are entirely situated within the naturalistic worldview. Uh, both of these probably can't be correct, though, right? Uh, people are having noetic experiences that our universe is nothing more than a single scale on a cosmic serpent's back, which, by the way, we can't disprove. Uh, but people are having equally noetic experiences that the world is still the universe that is explained by the scientific paradigm. And in your work, you refer to these different types of experiences and the, the noetic gravity they carry as this question of the epistemic status of psychedelic experiences. So how should we think about these different kinds of experiences people are having? How wary should we be of believing even our own experience on psychedelics? How do we handle the fact that not only do psychedelics occasion such novel experiences, but they feel so certain to us, so so real? Yeah, so I think basically one thing that is really needed in the psychedelic sphere, both in um, research and in the practical sphere, is a certain amount of sober critical rationality, right? So it's important to walk a line. Um, one wants to be, uh, and you know, I'm not talking about during the experience itself, during a psychedelic experience itself, one simply is open and receptive and, and you know, um, experiences what happens. But then in thinking about these experiences, either side of them, what to make of them as individuals and what to make of them as a society, I think it's important to tread a balanced line, but to bring a certain amount of sober, critical, rational scrutiny that hasn't historically always been there in thinking about psychedelic experiences, right? So Mm -hmm. I think in the history of the the Western world's encounter with these substances, there's been a tendency from the epistemological standpoint, right, from the question of do these experiences allow us to learn anything real, there's been a tendency towards two opposite extremes. Yeah, so I think the uh, the anthropologist Nicholas Lunglitz might have pointed this out, that, you know, historically there's been this sort of 
entheogenic uh, valorization, the idea that, you know, psychedelic experiences reveal the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth mm-hmm. about the metaphysical nature of reality. And then on the other hand, and that, that typically goes along with some kind of non-naturalist, you know, some kind of idealism or pantheism or something like that. And then on the other hand, you've had the sort of uh, naturalistic scientific tendency to conceive of them as hallucinogens or psychotomimetics, so names which suggest that they're central effects, their defining effects are anti-epistemic, are all about being out of touch with reality as it is. And um, part of what I'm concerned to argue for is that the truth is squarely in the middle, right? That there are epistemic harms and benefits or more cautiously epistemic risks and opportunities associated with these experiences and that to minimize the risks and maximize the opportunity, it's important to approach them with a certain amount of, uh, as I say, um, caution and critical rationality. And there are two important things that I, in thinking about the epistemic status of the psychedelic state, and one is this line from Andy Clark about the predictive processing theory of cognition, the idea that prior knowledge, these high level beliefs are always both constraining and enabling, right? So they always have mm. this facilitating epistemic effect and this limiting effect. So you think back to the hollow mask illusion again. So the brain has certain heavily weighted prior beliefs about human faces and what they look like. And that's a really good thing because without priors about what faces look like, we couldn't actually perceive faces, right? You need those models to perceive anything at all if this theory of cognition is true. But on the other hand, when you think about the hollow mask case in particular, you can see that that's a case where heavily weighted prior knowledge actually gets in the way of knowing the world accurately, um, you know, kind of overrides your sensory evidence and makes you see something that isn't really there. And so the thought is that that same kind of dynamic plays out all over the place, right? We need models of ourselves and of our various kind of traits and characteristics. Otherwise, we couldn't kind of um, navigate our way successfully through life. But when our models of who we are become um, overly you know, rigid and too heavily weighted, then we can simply be oblivious to things like the fact that possibilities are available for us or the fact that, you know, we are a good person or we are worthy or people do care about us or whatever. You know, we can have these heavily weighted kind of rigid negative beliefs that not only are psychologically harmful but are epistemically harmful. They kind of prevent us from accessing real facts about um, our lives and our own situation. So that's one thing to appreciate is that if this Rebus model and the self-unbinding story is on the right track, then psychedelics cause epistemic risks and opportunities by the same mechanism, right? By kind Mm. of um, taking these priors temporarily out of action, they allow us to get new information that previously those priors would have filtered out. But they also um, temporarily remove the epistemic um, benefits that the priors themselves uh, confer, right? So the ability to make certain sorts of inferences and categorization, the ability to, you know, um, think critically and um, um, rationally and that kind of thing. So that's one thing is, yeah, this this idea that psychedelics unconstrain the mind, unconstrained cognition, open the mind in a way that is sort of epistemically both risky and potentially beneficial because prior knowledge itself is both um, constraining and enabling, as Clark says. And the other thing, that is really important that, you know, um, I quote a formulation of it by Jennifer Vint. She says, you know, um, in her paper on altered states, um, philosophy and altered states of consciousness, she makes this really important point um, that 
phenomenal the phenomenal feeling of certainty is not the same as epistemic justification right so having this strong feeling of knowing or this strong feeling that something is absolutely real or that you you know you're totally certain is not the same as actually having any kind of good evidence or reasons um, to believe that thing and um, this mm. is important because you know it's it's pretty clear that psychedelics do dial up radically the feeling of certainty the feeling of knowing and maybe in some cases that's because they really are allowing people to gain staggering insights and then the insights you know rightly kind of cause the feeling of knowing but it seems quite improbable to think that they're not sometimes causing um, you know borrowing from thomas metzinger right so metzinger has talked about semantic hallucinations right so the feeling that something is meaningful when really it's not well uh, adopting a turn of phrase there we could say it's, it's got to be the case that psychedelics sometimes cause noetic hallucinations or epistemic hallucinations mm. right so the feeling of knowing when uh, one is in fact not knowing um so those are kind of the two basic principles that i think are really important in thinking about the epistemic status of the psychedelic state to avoid the these pitfalls of kind of um uncritical um acceptance and uncritical rejection yeah, and it's interesting in the, when you were describing the the first element there. You know how these these priors sometimes grow too too rigid, overly rigid, uh, and you said that you see it. You see that same dynamic play out all over the place. I thought back to I was reading um, the anthropologist who passed away recently, David Graeber's uh, History of Debt, and in there, there's an interesting kind of analogy here where he's talking about in the way, 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 way old days, hundreds, 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 I think thousands of years ago societies had kind of uh, cyclical debt jubilees. So basically society would go on and people would get into so much debt. And what happened when you, when you got into debt in those days is basically uh, debtors would come and kind of claim your assets. Once your assets were claimed, they would take your family members. It was this really kind of bad deal. So people who were in a lot of debt would kind of move out to the outskirts of town on the desert and live in these kind of like gypsy caravans because they didn't want to have their families repossessed. And so what the, the kings and the leaders of these civilizations is every now and then they would have these debt jubilees where they announce everyone's slate is wiped clean, everyone come back, and you kind of uh, reset the cycle, um, which is kind of similar to you know the, the gonzo journalist uh, Hunter S. Thompson. He, he has this quote where he talks about uh, psychedelics and he says something like, you know, I take acid once a year in order to, to clear the pipes, right? right it's the same idea, right. this kind of cyclical, you know, uh, keeping things flexible. I mean, we talked when we were talking about Mark Fisher, I was talking about, you know, there's kind of a sweet spot where we, like you mentioned, we need these priors. They are enabling. They, they, if we were kind of a, a totally blank slate every time that we encounter a moment of experience, we'd be absolutely helpless and overwhelmed and, and destroyed by, by predators or whatever. Right. Um, but by the same turn of, by the same mechanism, as you said, they, they can grow overly confined. And it's very. It seems very important, um, not only to, to talk about unselfing explicitly in, in terms of psychedelics, but to to have institutions in place that help us kind of stay loose. I guess is a good way to put it to kind of stay up yeah. on our flexibility, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And one of the things I find really interesting is you know 
there's an emerging literature coming out on the potential connections and synergies between um, psychedelic therapy and third wave um, behavioral therapies like acceptance mm-hmm. and commitment therapy and dialectical behavior therapy and the core construct or one of the core constructs of those therapies is this notion of psychological flexibility which you know this stuff originally came out of efforts by um, the psychologist Stephen Hayes to kind of think about spirituality and make the kind of psychological benefits of spiritual experiences and spiritual practices tractable from a secular naturalistic perspective and um, Mm -hmm. there is this notion of psychological flexibility which interestingly is defined as the opposite of experiential avoidance right and um, so Mm -hmm. to the extent that you uh, kind of habitually tend to try and avoid certain types of difficult or uncomfortable experiences you are psychologically inflexible to the extent that you are kind of willing to tolerate um, unusual uncomfortable um, distressing or difficult experiences you are psychologically flexible and my understanding is that you know, psychological flexibility has been shown to be this fairly robust trans-diagnostic um, predictor of uh, um, mental health and um, things like that. But um, it also just gets to there's this this great quote by um, I think it's by Isaac Asimov that Robin Carhart Harris quotes in one of his papers. You know, um, your assumptions are your windows on the world. Scrub them off every once in a while, or the light won't get in. Um, and mm, that just yeah. that gets right to it. Yeah, and it's it's funny. Uh, you were you mentioned a little while back this you know this growing affinity for the idea of spiritual but not religious. I think that very often, especially people my age, you know, we we look at organized religion as a very rigid institution, you know, that we've been trying to escape the oppression from, um, which which has its merits. But at the same time, even if this was a kind of rigid and, and oppressive institution, it also had its enablements. It also was a kind of vehicle of offering us ways to engage in these practices that have these kind of unselfing effects. And Correct. so we do away with religion. Great. But we do also in, in doing away with whatever, whatever consequences it brought, we also do away with the affordances that it gave us. Right. Yeah, so we're kind of yeah. looking for a way to bring those back. That's right. There is very much, I think in this whole business of naturalizing spirituality and religious naturalism, there is a very strong baby bathwater kind of um, mm-hmm. picture. Yeah. Yeah. Wonderful. So your book, Philosophy of Psychedelics, comes out in a few months now? Yeah, um, hopefully currently slated for release in May. It might end up being a month or two later than that, but it should be around the middle of this year. Yeah. I I highly recommend it for anyone. Uh, You did such a skillful job of kind of bringing together a a very rigorous tour of the therapeutic and more widely acceptable surface of psychedelics, and then with this kind of funkier edge of naturalizing spirituality. and also, I mean, the main point of your book is to is to reject something that that you call the comforting delusion hypothesis, or one point among many, um, which is a fascinating argument that, that we've touched on kind of um, tangentially. But if anyone's interest is ticked, I, I really you can pre-order the book. I'll have a link on the show notes page for that. Chris, thank you so much. Insofar as this conversation actually occurred in in some objective or at least intersubjective <laughs> reality, it wasn't a fabrication of my model. It was a pleasure to speak with you. Likewise, absolute pleasure. Thanks, Ashan. Okay. Once again, if you made it to the end here, you might be interested in checking out more of Chris's work, all of which is linked on the podcast show notes page. 
In terms of psychedelics, I think the next few decades are going to be incredibly interesting. Um, Oregon, which has now legalized psychedelic mushrooms, the first state in the U.S. to do so, is going to pave a path that hopefully other states will be able to follow. Uh, their legalization measure will allow for licensed facilities to store mushrooms, um, so they'll only be available in kind of therapeutic and professional contexts, not necessarily at at dispensaries like marijuana currently is. But the the psychedelic researcher Stan Groff has this little pithy quote that's likely true. Right? He says, "Psychedelics will be for the study of the mind, what the telescope was for astronomy." And if you caught my most recent uh, podcast episode before this with Eric Coel, we spoke about exactly this, right? How a, as a culture, we've grown away from valuing interiority, what he calls the intrinsic perspective. And psychedelics can't shift us towards valuing subjectivity all on their own. But you see the same trend in all disciplines, right? I mean, in, in city planning and urban design and the architecture space, we're starting to realize that we've built physical environments that make us feel like shit. And in economics, we're realizing that we've designed an economy with just about zero consideration for its impacts on mental health, right? We've taken the assumption that a job is the highest good, no matter the content or quality of that job. And even for those lucky enough to secure full-time uh, employment that keeps them out of economic insecurity, they might be doing work that actually does what the, the late anthropologist David Graeber would call spiritual violence, right? It dulls rather than kindles our humanity, our creativity, the, the diversity and the vitality of our interior worlds. And I, I'm optimistic that psychedelics will be a part of this equation, right? That helps return our attention towards that interior question of, of what it feels like to be alive and, and what, kind of a, what kind of role the social world that we're building plays in shaping and guiding that experience. Anyway, if you would like to stay in the loop on new episodes of the podcast, you can subscribe or there's a, a tab on the Musing Mind website at the top that says newsletter. And that's where I release you know, not only new episodes, but a little more context on, on my guests' work and so on. And if you'd like to get in touch, you can reach out to me uh, on Twitter, or there's a, a contact form on the website itself. And that's it. Thanks all for listening, and I'll talk to you next time.